where I can talk about music in India or on the one hand about the many many different genres that exist in India and of which I had never heard before I came there like especially the more classical genres the more devotional genres and also about the way that Indian music is kind of embedded in daily life is kind of part of the fabric of daily life I'd say and the way I experienced it since I really started to like that format of uh, podcasting where I'm in kind of a conversation with someone who is interested in some way in the same topic that I'm currently interested in, I decided to follow up on that topic of music again by having a conversation with someone who uh, is well versed in that field and who felt like exploring it a little bit more with me. And uh, that is my friend, Arnav Seti, and I'm really hoping I'm pronouncing your name right here. We met when I was studying in Delhi, and he is actually being trained in classical singing. So we had been talking about creating a podcast episode together before, and uh, it is actually the very first time that I'm really naming someone's name in my podcast. I've never done that before, and kind of co-creating an episode with someone so thank you Arnav and I'm honored to have you as the first person to do that in my podcast. Yes so I think it all started off when I told Arnav that I'm very interested in music in India and of course I remember that he's doing classical singing and I think I started it off by telling him how I've always been kind of amazed how music is very differently embedded in daily life in other countries than it is in Switzerland. For example, I feel like in Switzerland, music is not that much part of daily life. Most people walk around and have their headphones on. So, I mean, everyone is listening to his or her own music. Or sometimes you see some gangs of youth walking by and they have some boxes and they listen to some loud rap music or whatever out of them. But apart from that, there is not so much music in daily life of course in bars and clubs and concerts although lately not a lot of that was, ha was happening due to corona but uh, it's not like how I remember it for example from uh, South America where every small little fruit stand or shake stand has a shitty little radio which is uh, making terrible sound but uh, it's still playing salsa at its loudest <laughs> whenever it can and it seemed very similar to me in India or I discovered the same thing which fascinated me so that I 
would hear music everywhere. Like, first of all, people were humming and singing to themselves a lot of time. And for some reason, so many people were singing so well and in very different manners than I knew it from at home. Or uh, you would always hear some music or like one place in Delhi in Munirka where I lived for a while when I walked through the small alleys and streets. I always heard uh, people watching movies with the songs in it very loudly, listening to music in general and uh, or people singing songs together, people protesting and uh, singing songs. And it was just I was just amazed by how naturally music seems to be kind of interweaved in the fabric of daily life everywhere. And uh, yeah, I wanted to ask Arnav what he thinks about that and uh, if he sees that similar. Firstly about the embeddedness of music in daily life, right? Like, uh, I mean, obviously you can't speak of Indian culture in uh, as a sort of homogeneous entity. Uh, but I think music really has a very important role when it comes to any sort of collective ritual. Music as forms of resistance, of course, it's like a very big thing. Uh, I'm sure you noticed it as well when you were in Delhi. Or even like broadly in terms of just any sort of collective political mobilization you'd see uh, so there's the entire sort of desi rap industry that's also coming out and this is particularly with reference to the movie that came out i think last year or probably some time ago the gully boy i'm talking about which is about the the mumbai slum the famous dharavi slum where there are these rap artists coming out of there and they're talking about their uh, sort of daily everyday struggles and it's same with the, a lot of dalit resistance as well so protest uh, music as like a genre in itself i mean so even like generally like in our daily lives like particularly like in my house also like i just notice like unconsciously there'll be people in different parts of the house who'll just be like probably humming people who come to work to the house will probably be humming while doing their work and then i think the other sort of <coughs> very significant aspect of uh, the embeddedness of music in uh, everyday social relations is uh, to do with spirituality, right? So if one looks at any of the sort of major religious, religious or cultural traditions of India, whether it's Hinduism, Islam, Christianity, Sikhism, any of them, forms of devotional worship involve music, right? So whether it's in terms of like certain recitations of certain uh, religious texts, it's I mean, it always sort of induces that sort of a spiritual state. So just generally, you could just be sitting in like your room, working, reading something, and you just probably the whole night, you're just focused on listening to the recitations from the nearby temple, right? So like it's happened with me many times that I'm just like reading till late into the night, but there's like loud music. So that's the other thing. And then of course, in work, particularly like during the harvest season, essentially, all of these activities in the agricultural seasons are centered around music. So whether it's in terms of cutting the harvest, winnowing, all of these processes, like while doing all of this, there are specific songs or even like hymns sometimes which are sung. It's like one sort of song for a particular season and another song for another season, things like that. Or if it's fishing communities have like their own sort of songs while they are out fishing. So you'll find songs about like the wrath of the sea, the anger, extreme anger of the sea, of the rough waters, things like that. So, I mean, it's actually interesting to notice. It like sort of varies in, in terms of occupation. 
Then I was thinking a bit more about the different music genres that, of course, exist. And uh, the way you meet, come to meet these different music genres during your life, in different chapters of your life. Like when I think about it, for example, when I grew up in my house, there used to be music all the time because my dad was and sometimes still is a DJ. So we listened to all kinds of music always. There was always music had been played, a lot of things from the 60s, but also more modern stuff and all of this. And But there were certain, there were certain music genres with which I only came in contact later in life. For example, when I made more Latin American friends and also went traveling in South America, I suddenly started to really like uh, reggaeton, salsa and a lot of other, like I would say, Latin music genres. And yeah, I grew a liking on them and a lot of them like Vallenato or whatever. I never knew the, they existed before I met these friends or traveled these countries. And the same one could say about a lot of genres I encountered in India that uh, I never knew what Kavali is or a bhajan or all uh, these devotional kinds of singing. I, I knew Bollywood, of course. I was also, when I was a teenager, these Bollywood movies from the 90s arrived and suddenly I knew how Bollywood sounds. But it's like that collection of different music genres. I think like it grows very slowly through your life depending on whom you meet, what you encounter in the internet, maybe where you go traveling. And there's so many, yeah, the way that you collect these different genres and of course start to like them or not like them is uh, quite unique, I think, to every life. So when I asked Arnav about his own music genre biography, he told me how he grew up mostly with old Bollywood songs from the 70s and 80s, because... Uh, his father was a huge uh, Kishore Kumar fan and all of that. And how Arnav himself later also listened to music from Bollywood movies. But he could never really connect to Western music. Although he wanted to like uh, expose himself to many different genres, he still kind of yeah couldn't find that same fascination for uh, Western music. Interestingly... Even with classical music, he told me how he used to find it very difficult a few years, many years ago, to listen to a whole classical song, basically, to a piece of class, whole Indian classical music. But uh, how now he's fully into it and he's going to all sorts of classical music concerts, I mean, Indian classical music concerts in, in India, while most of his friends would be very taken in by uh, British and American pop culture and while they would rather go and see a famous international metal artist for example and how sometimes this is also kind of difficult like if you cannot so much see something in that popular culture music which everyone likes so much an experience which I also made in my teenage years when I listened to hard rock music instead of uh, Britney Spears <laughs> and uh, so I could very much relate with this. So I wanted to ask Arnav, like, what are all these different genres that you find in India? And uh, how is it to grow up in that environment where all of these genres are present? And kind of how did he experience this or how did he see that? So, yeah, to address the other question about the different genres, like I already spoke about devotional music and there is, of course, Bollywood and there's increasingly like a pop industry that's not to do with Bollywood, but it's these particularly with like Punjabi music. There's classical, there are 
of course light genres uh, bhajan music which of course again comes under devotional there is also sufi music this qawwali some of that also can come under devotional if we talk in terms of pedagogical methods of like teaching music when one learns then either one learns like in the tradition of pure hindustani classical so indian classical is of course divided into two right so it's hindustani classical which is mostly found in the northern part of india and uh, the other is carnatic which is southern india so i mean yeah so you would either be trained in any of the two classical traditions and along with that you also tend to learn a lot of the light numbers so that would include things like ghazals which are like short poems written and uh, set to tune so you would learn ghazals you would learn bhajans then you would learn something called thumris dadras these are all like semi classical and light forms of uh, music which are mostly used for dance performances uh, growing up with these different genres i think well growing up's actually been I, i can talk personally it's been very sort of interesting because so i actually took to classical like pure classical music pretty late like uh, when is it in your life that you realize that you actually have like an aptitude for singing then of course i was very curious uh, to find out how exactly he came to learn classical singing and what exactly does this classical singing involve what kind of a position does it have in society and uh, i wanted to hear all about it and i hope so do you so in my case it was like uh, i was probably in like kindergarten or something and uh, i was probably like 4 or 5 years old and i think i just got sort of inclined to singing some people singing in the morning assembly or something like that i got sort of inclined to see if like i can do that and i remember like i joined like the school choir i approached the teacher and i said i think i'm interested in this and then i think that was probably the first time i sang and then i guess the teacher saw that i had some potential so i was part of the school choir in school but of course that was not like pure classical training right so it was just like you'd go attend some of the practices for the performances within school and it was just limited to that and then i mean later on in life i actually tried really hard to find good classical teachers i mean so like when i try to approach people to learn music apart from just like within school then i mean i realized that everyone's just teaching me classical so initially even though i wasn't so encouraged to take it up because probably like in the early years of my teenager years and even before that there were some very serious sort of social sanctions against learning indian music in general you know like if you were someone who learned indian classical music or if you sang like a bhajan or something like that it was something that people looked down upon like i mean i remember often the choir while performing we'd have to keep beat right so that the tradition in indian music often is that you either keep beat with your foot if you're standing but if you're sitting and if you're sitting cross legged 
that's usually how you do perform when you sing so to keep beat you actually need to like clap with one palm a little bit above your knee to keep beat right so people so i would do that and uh, people would make fun of me a lot so like sometimes i would just go to the western music sort of uh, room as well to try that like a different genre out and then people would be like what are you doing here you should get back to your thigh slapping so i mean yeah i'm laughing about it now but i think it really sort of had a deep impression upon me back then because that, which is why increasingly i didn't want to take up classical music as seriously right so and i i've noticed in a lot of other people sort of journeys with music it also happens such that they start off initially because like because of their parents or any sort of other influence or any other elder in their life brings them into learning classical music from the beginning as in when they are children so they get trained in that institutionally and then increasingly when they come into like the teenage years they just leave it they just completely leave it so there are like so many of my friends who say yeah yeah i took classical training when i was younger in my primary school and this and that and i just left it after that i mean so in their in their cases it was actually the reverse right so they started off with that and then by the by the teenage years they just completely left it so it was probably to do with similar experiences that i had but in my case i didn't leave it like after my teenage years like i actually took it up very seriously by the time i reached college ah you have already been wondering the voice we hear in these beautiful recordings every now and then it's uh, actually arnav himself singing uh, he sent me some of these recordings and i certainly do enjoy them a lot so when arnav told me about uh, his classical singing and the classes he's taking i suddenly kind of wondered how the relationship between a music teacher and uh, his student might be because in my head i kind of of course i know the relationship i had with my guitar teacher for example which was a rather informal kind of relationship where i would just go over to class and i would just learn to play and we would joke around and all of that and somehow i had a feeling that maybe the picture i have in my head which of this relationship between a classical music teacher and in india and his student might be completely wrong and the very swiss picture or westernized picture and therefore i asked him to tell me a bit more about this relationship between teacher and student when it's about the classical singing uh yeah so the thing about how the sort of teacher student relationship is different in indian classical music as compared to other forms of teaching music right like you mention your relationship with your guitar teacher so um, it's, it's what's called the guru shishya parampara which basically means like the guru is of course the teacher and the shishya is the student and the parampara is the tradition so it's basically like it has this whole sort of discourse around it where it's this age old tradition of 
just teaching in general so it doesn't have to be limited to music it's also the kind of education sort of imparted in what would traditionally be called gurukuls which were like the traditional schools prior to the advent of sort of uh, colonial modernity so i mean it's like a broader sort of pedagogical method in general so it's also used in dance and music so basically how it works is that there's this whole idea about how the guru is like a living embodiment of the divine in this world there are a lot of sayings around this right so like the famous poet kabir das he has like a two couplets on so basically the couplet means that if the guru and god both are standing in front of me whose feet do i touch first so do i touch the guru's feet first or do i touch god's feet first so kabir goes on to say that i will touch the guru's feet first because he is the one who told me what god is or who god is so i mean yeah so i mean there's the that idea but the guru is then a living embodiment of the divine in this world so it's somebody who you owe complete allegiance to even in terms of like the sort of what is expected of the student of the shishya in terms of gestures the way you touch the feet and the way you show your respect or your deference and so the relationship is not just limited to that one or two hours of the lesson that you take like the music that you learn otherwise you know like in if you're learning western music here uh, it's very different so if you learn from somebody whether you go to their house or they come to your house to teach it's just that you learn and you pay them their fee and that's all that's what happens uh, but then out here it's entirely different so around the year there are these specific specific days and events where all the shishyas like who the guru teaches are expected to come to the guru's house and celebrate these occasions together so one is the guru's birthday so every year on his birthday you're supposed to go to the house so there's like a ceremony there's some puja some worship and uh, uh, and then the students perform in that sort of setting so yeah so like this there are different sort of occasions where it's an obligation upon the shishya to attend the guru's house and take part in all of these activities together so the other thing also about the relationship is that it's not just a relationship that's limited to only the exchange between the guru and the shishya you're actually also expected to maintain cordial relations with all the other shishyas of the guru like you're expected to be cordial with them and like organize events together do things for the guru together so if it's if if the guru is performing somewhere then all the shishyas are expected to be there they are all expected to help in the organization and the logistics of it so this entire thing was based out of households first right so the whole idea of like the teacher going to the student's house i don't think i think it's a very modern thing the idea always was that the shishya goes to the guru's house in fact like a lot of the very famous classical singers actually spent years living in their guru's houses in that sort of relationship then in in that aspect of it you also tend to maintain relations with other family members of the guru so if i go and visit my guru for my class and if i see his wife anywhere around the house then i have to touch her feet so i address her as guru ma and then his children i have to also be on good terms with and so that's a major difference of course and then 
even in terms of how you consider the relationship of the guru and the shishya it's so what's expected is complete deference right so like every time you perform before you start singing you have to literally say a few words which i mean obviously you always introduce yourself but within that introduction more often than not it's always that okay i bow down in the feet of my gurus and my elders and i seek their blessings before i start this performance and that i am nothing without them all that i am is because of them and i'm not going to be giving a performance what i'm going to do is it's just a small little effort on my part and you have to thank them for all of that i mean it it actually gets a little too much at times uh, if you ask me personally but yes don't quote me saying that <laughs> but uh, because it it's like this sort of moral pressure on every sort of performer every time or every student also right like there are these set of unsaid rules that you have to just go by and it's also very difficult to sort of sort of get trained into these modes of thinking and modes of being right so when i started learning from the person that i learn from currently i was not uh, trained into these things uh, before like i came in and there's no rule book right so you don't know how you're supposed to behave it's this, these are just unsaid rules so the other thing i was thinking about is that how this tradition the guru shishya parampara itself how it sort of changed over time right so like i mean obviously it's very sort of simplistic and sort of reductionistic to think that it was like this perfect form in like the good old days and now it's just become so corrupted and these are these are some of like i'm actually telling you what people actually say in the classical music circuits that you know like we've lost all of that all of the whatever was great about this whole tradition and now we are just like all westernized i mean very similar to like things that you hear even generally about like the discourses on indian society and indian culture it's it's very similar to that i mean it's actually very interesting to see it i mean like at one level it's becoming this really popular thing across the world and then if you look at it from within these are the things that people actually say in these circles and what they feel about it themselves yeah and then that extends to i mean it's not just limited to the music it's it is it extends to the entire relationship as well right so uh, gurus increasingly tend to think that yeah the present modern day generation is so like out of it i mean they they've just lost all touch with their roots and their culture and all of those things and you hear this all the time so like the whole discourse on sanskar <laughs> like the the tra- traditional values and the culturally thoughts that has to be preserved then of course we talked a long time about the history of uh, classical singing in india and uh, it turned out that this is not it's a quite complicated matter i think to understand for someone not very familiar with it like me in the beginning we have this question of this idea of something classical like a classical language that is kind of a time transcending kind of a thing and uh, 
And yeah, this maybe even Western idea of what something classical actually means. Interestingly, Arnav told me how for uh, the raga music, or let's say music in the style of Indian classical singing with uh, note pattern, notation patterns and uh, certain music structures, that that used to be a completely oral tradition for a very long time. There was nothing written. So if you want to call it classical, there's like a lot, a long time that this had never been written down and it wasn't intended to be transmitted uh, in the written form. It was only much later in the, within the project of nationalism and a certain project of classicizing certain things that uh, the whole raga music has actually been written down in some or the other way. There are a lot of discussions and around this, um, especially from a more subaltern kind of standpoint. There is this critique that at that point, that whole classicizing happened, that at that point um, it was suddenly mostly Brahmins, which Arnav confirmed to me that till today people practicing Indian classical singing or probably who are people who are famous with it are mostly Brahmins, maybe a few Muslims, but very, very few actually lower caste people. Yeah, one could argue that in that time um, that actually this form of art was kind of appropriated by these upper caste people and a lot of lower caste practitioners or performers were kind of marginalized and that somehow we can see this in the structure of the people who do Indian classical singing today. Also within the whole nationalist project, uh, people more and more kind of tried to trace the roots of Indian classical singing back to the Vedic texts, something which uh, should should be looked at rather critically, I think, because it's so much uh, intertwined with the nationalist project of that time. Another aspect about which we talked, which I found quite interesting, was that... uh, the Bollywood music from the 50s and 60s, which I personally like so much. And I think at this, this point I should be saying that uh, I still have the intention to one day create a beautiful podcast episode about Bollywood. But I feel like I need to find the right person to do that with. Someone who is as consumed by Bollywood as our Arnav is by his classical singing. So till the day I find someone like this to do an episode with, uh, you have to wait. I'm sorry, patience is uh, needed here. Although I keep promising this episode, but yeah. <laughs> but uh, yes, the interesting thing was that actually a lot of the Bollywood songs from the 50s, 60s, which I love so much, are actually kind of based on uh, classical raga music, on the same kind of musical patterns and so on, which was it's very interesting and now I can kind of see the connections after I've listened to Arnav's recordings and uh, think about my favorite songs from that time but I didn't see that connection before or I didn't make it for some reason. Then of course I had to ask him the question of but then what is and isn't classical music like it's it's very difficult to grasp this whole concept for uh, people having grown up in the west and are probably hearing about all of this for the first time and it turned out that this is a rather difficult question to answer especially because of the whole historical and uh, political baggage this whole 
topic or this whole discussion brings with it. And we talked about it a bit before where I tried to talk a little bit about the whole history of classical Indian music. But if we want to define what classical music is or isn't, there are a lot of questions of power actually in place so that uh, we both found it very difficult to answer it and uh, I sadly will leave you with no answer <laughs> to that. But I hope that the recordings you heard talking about classical music will hopefully kind of help you to develop a feeling for what it is. But at the very end, there was one more question left in my head. What is it that uh, fascinates my friend Arnav personally so much about Indian classical singing? What fascinates me the most about classical singing? Uh, I think what is specifically only to Indian classical music, at least for me, is I've always thought that this form of music actually has a lot of therapeutic potential. I mean, it performs like a sort of a redemptive function in the sense that, I mean, there, there's some impact to to it, some sort of spiritual impact that this music has uh, specifically for me, that other forms of music, if I sing casually, uh, like even something very soulful, it doesn't have the same sort of impact, like it doesn't touch the very sort of innermost aspects of your being, if you get what I mean. And because every time I would just sit down to practice just all by myself. It takes it, it is sort of transcendental in that sense, right? Like it takes you to some other realm of existence. I mean this is like this is very sort of traditional Orientalist ideas associated with Indian classical music that it's otherworldly and stuff like that. But I don't know. I mean like some of it actually comes to be true, at least in my case, because I actually think like there are some certain aspects to it because like often if I'm just like singing in my room, my eyes are closed and I'm just like doing riyas, practicing, then it actually feels like I've reached some other level. Like I can't explain it in words. It's very difficult to sort of explain it in words and it specifically happens. It's happened like many times. Like It's a sort of moment of epiphany. Like it's like an epiphanic moment that I've. this has specifically happened during my classes with my guru sometimes like it does happen like when like when i'm singing certain notes certain pitches yeah so i think that is like something very fascinating and it's also something that i want to explore as an academic interest yeah So then we already have reached the end of this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed this uh, small little journey, starting from the embeddedness of music in uh, daily life in India, going over, flowing over to uh, classical singing in India, talking about the whole Guru Shishya tradition and going back to that very fascination with that very beautiful practice. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Um, da, oh, da, da, oh, tum,
Gamma, 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 Gamma,